Hi all, thanks for joining today for this episode where we will be chatting with Meryl Dakin from Knock. If you listened to last week's episode, you heard me mention that we're conducting a survey. But for those just tuning in, I want to give you a heads up about the survey that we will be conducting this month to improve our podcast. Whether you listen every week or sporadically, we want to hear from you about how we can make this podcast even better. The survey should only take a few minutes of your time, and it involves important questions like what themes you want us to cover, any particular guests you would like us to talk to, and how long should an ideal episode be. To fill it out, head over to https colon forward slash forward slash smr.tl forward slash survey and let us know how we can make Elixir Wizards better for you. Okay, now let's hear from Meryl. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Sunday Mint and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my co-host, Owen Bickford. Hey, Owen. Hey, Sandy. (laughs) And my producer, Bonnie Lander. This season's theme is Impact of Elixir, and we're joined by a very special guest today, Meryl Dakin. Hi, Meryl. Hey, Sandy. Thanks for having me here. We're so glad you could be here. And also, it's real fun because we actually just recently saw each other, so it's fun to see each other again. The world is maybe coming back to normal. (laughs) Cross your fingers, knock on wood. Yeah, absolutely. Right out the gate, we're recording this like mid-December. You just mentioned Netflix Christmas Universe. What's up with the Netflix Christmas Universe? Okay, I don't know if you guys are on this train yet, but if you want some content that you don't have to think about, Netflix has about a thousand movies out and a lot of them seem to be interrelated. Like you'll watch one and another one is playing in the background on a TV. Or they have like this made up country that's referenced throughout all of the Netflix movies just to like, I guess, establish that this is a real place. I'm pretty sure that this is going to become like embedded in my brain as a real place at some point. But I can highly recommend The Night Before Christmas as a time traveling holiday watch. There's like some advent calendar Christmas. I'm just honestly consuming all of the Netflix Christmas specials right now. Single All the Way is one of those, right? Is it in the same universe? Yeah, I need to get to that one, but I bet you that it is. If they mention Aldovia in it, then yeah. Have you watched that, Owen? I did, but I did not. I wasn't aware of this whole universe concept, so I wasn't looking for clues or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, like I've seen the hints, but I never really thought about it too much. I think I watched, I don't remember what it was called, but it was with Nina Dobrev and Jimmy Yang, the vampires, Vampire Diaries girl. And I remember, I think there was something going on on the TV in the background and me thinking, hmm. But I also 100% grew up thinking that Genovia was a real place from there the Princess Star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's one. I think the most popular one is the Princess Switch, which is not Princess mm-hmm. Diaries, but it's similarly someone goes to a place called Aldovia and becomes mm-hmm. a princess there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. There are three of them now. There's so many. Three princesses. <laughs> they switch three times. It's wild. It's a ball. Amazing, amazing. Well, tis the season. We're happy to have you. We're we're being festive. Of course, this is going to come out like <laughs> after Christmas, after the holidays. But anyways, well, it'll extend the season absolutely. And anybody who hasn't gotten a chance can catch up during the new year. Yeah, Meryl, you've been on the podcast before, but it's been a little while. So just for our friends, our listeners, do you want to just give a quick intro of? of you and like what you're up to now, what's new since the last time we got to chat with you? Yeah, sure. 
I am a developer based in Brooklyn. I have been working in Elixir since, I guess, 2018. I went to a boot camp when I moved to New York, Flatiron School, to learn how to code. And since then, I've worked at Flatiron School, both as an engineer and teacher at Frame.io, and as recently as last Thursday at Knock now, which I'm super excited about, and um, I'm just now getting into everything there. So that's kind of where I'm at. I also just recently emceed ElixirConf with my co-host, Sophie DiBenedetto, and we had an amazing time. Got to see you in person Sunday, and that was really fun. So yeah, that is a high-level view of my involvement in Elixir and engineering in general. Yeah, and you implemented at ElixirConf this wonderful Elixir pets, the wonderful world of pets and Elixir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. That was something that it was one of the few things that we planned before ElixirConf was trying to get people to tweet pictures of their pets at us, which was more just because we wanted to see pictures of pets, but also it gave us a chance to highlight some of the best ones at the conference. So that was very fun. We also did some tarot card reading, which was also great. That is something that we've been striving to do at everything that we host or talk about on podcasts. So hopefully people will just ask us to host their conferences, technical or not, because that was a blast. It was a lot of fun having you guys as MCs. It was, the energy was good throughout and it was kind of like a nice glue between all the different uh, talks. So that was really nice. We honestly had a great time doing it. We didn't plan a ton of things, like I said, but Sophie is obviously a great person to work with and to riff on with. And so it was it was really fun to get to meet people and introduce everybody and also just kind of try to have some fun on the in-between parts because it can get a little bit, you know, monotonous if we don't have somebody just moving everything along. So yeah, we had a really good time and I hope that we get to do stuff like that again in the future. Now, I do have a super technical question just to kick things off. How many cats are in the Dakin family? And what's your beautiful idiot to terrifying demon ratio? So great question, Owen. Thank you. These are the hard-hitting things that came on this podcast yes. before. <laughs> we have two cats in the household, baby cat and swamp cat. And I would say for us, it is definitely a one-to-one -one ratio. But I have observed households with greater number of cats, including my mom's. And I would say that once it gets above two, there's more of a gradient of idiot to mm -hmm, demon. Yeah. So you've got all kinds of things in between. Yeah, nuance. Yeah, we were just talking about how I think we had a company meeting a few hours ago and just like the first 10 minutes of the meeting was everybody's cat decided that they needed cuddles right then and there. And so the screen was just full of everyone's cat <laughs> and the cuddles. And so, you know, it's great. It's great that we get to be wall home to wall with them. cats. Yeah. Wall to wall cats. Absolutely. It's a new world where I can be close to my coworkers in ways I never thought. <laughs> <laughs> just know all their cats and dogs names now. They're just as familiar to me as they are. I love it. There is absolutely a time where my cat coming on a screen and in a call, an important call, a podcast interview like this, a job interview, like back when, you know, that was the thing for me. Just thinking about the idea of my cat coming to interrupt it would have given me severe anxiety. And now I just straight up sit in client meetings and my cat's <laughs> like, I need belly rubs right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually a little offensive if they come up and the person you're talking to doesn't immediately stop what they're doing and say, oh my God, <laughs> right. what mm -hmm. a cute cat. <laughs> yeah. 
we're excited for you and Sophie to have done the whole pet extravaganza. I hope this is a, a thing that continues forevermore. And yeah, just very excited for all the, all the pet stuff. Oh, and also mentioned that this is, I actually didn't count myself. Is this actually your fifth appearance on Elixir Wizards? I have no idea. Is it? Did you count? That's Owen? from the podcast, like the episodes list on the site. There was, I counted four. I did a quick Merrill search. And wow. it said there were four, like, because you did a couple of like guest co-hosts appearances at one point and then a couple of guest appearances. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's another Merrill in Elixir. If there is, <laughs> I think up. it was Sophie and Merrill. So that would be weird if, if like Sophie's. I got another yes. mail in her pocket. I know. would honestly feel a little betrayed. <laughs> so I'm right. just going to say yeah. that on the record that Sophie, you can't work with any other Meryl. Meryl's <laughs> the Sophie to Meryl ratio is one to one forever. Yes, exactly. Exactly. We won't talk <laughs> yes. about the idiot to demon yes. ratio in that. That one. that is definitely probably easier to control than just like the Meryl ratio in the elixir space. <laughs> yeah, I 100% thought I was the only figure skater in elixir. And then somebody else at Elixir Conf was like, I'm a, I'm a figure skater too. My mind That's was blown. Wow. Absolutely wild. That's incredible. You just never know what you're going to get. So all I good. definitely welcome more Merrells into the Elixir space. More people generally would love that. Just not as a co-host with Sophie. <laughs> Claimed your territory there. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, actually, Owen, you, you mentioned this thing about this SEO. You want to talk about this? <laughs> yeah, so I was kind of brushing up my knowledge on your new company and uh, did a quick search. And as I was typing knock notifications and seeing all the suggestions, I was like, how am I ever going to find them? But you guys are right there at the top, like the first result, not even just the paid one, but like you're right there at the top, you know, knock.app. So yeah, congrats on beating out all of the other Thank self-help you. articles about, you know, managing your notifications or like you're specifically that knock you know, notification probably from Slack or whatever. So yeah, congrats on that. But that kind of leads me into like, yeah, there's this new endeavor you mentioned a few minutes ago, you're nailing SEO already. And I think for anyone who isn't currently searching the Knock app on Google, like what's your uh, introduction to this new company? Yeah, great question. First of all, so happy to hear that. That credit all goes to Chris and Sam. I would imagine both of them had a lot to do with that. Getting us at the top of the SEO is amazing, and both of them are very talented, incredible to work with, so it doesn't surprise me either. But basically, so Knock is a flexible notification infrastructure. It's for developers who don't want to build in-house notifications, which when it comes down to it, no one but us wants to build notifications. <laughs> That's kind of what we're here for. I imagine like there's a lot of people who have worked on notification systems within their own products. And the major pain to me with notification systems is that it doesn't relate to your core product often. So it's something that you would rather have as boilerplate. You would rather know works. You would probably rather outsource rather than spend engineer time and energy building from scratch something that has been done custom at many companies. So the Knock system provides this developer-first API-focused approach, which makes it really easy to be flexible, customizable. It can do pretty complex things with your notifications that you would maybe feel like you needed to do in-house, but actually this covers. So something as simple as when someone makes a comment, we want to send a push notification, 
or when someone comments on something specific, I want to send a push notification and an email, but only if that push notification hasn't been seen yet. And then I can get into more complex things like batching. So I can make sure that I'm not sending notifications one at a time, but putting them all in a batch for someone to see. And I honestly can't imagine working somewhere and knowing this existed and still feeling great that I was working on my own home-rolled notification system. And it's really fun to work on when this is the product, right? Like this is a cool space to be in. It's a very interesting technical challenge and product challenge, but it's a service and it's something that I would have loved to use at places where I was working on notifications in the past. So that's the overall idea of what we're doing right now. And we're already serving a number of customers and sending out notifications for them. They're they're using the product while it's in the stage it's at now before general release. And I've just started working on my first project that I'm working on is actually building out these pre-made templates so that when you enter the app at this point, you don't have, you kind of out of a blank slate. You can build as you're going like, okay, I'm going to drag this guy. I'm going to have a notification on this trigger. But we're trying to make it a lot easier to just jump in and get started and have some pre-built templates to go with. So that's actually the first thing I'm working on, which has been really fun. That's really cool. And I imagine that building it in Elixir makes things like notifications easier. Are you using something like channels? We have an event bus that we're using. We are also using infrastructure like Oban. We have uh, Kinesis to help out with our scale as we're working toward that. But yeah, it's a joy to write in Elixir. It's I've been writing in Elixir since I was at Flatiron School, and so I was definitely looking to stay in this world. And this is a really great use case for it. Can we back up for a second? Did you learn Elixir at Flatiron as like a part of the curriculum? That's a really good question. And no, I didn't. So okay. the Flatiron curriculum is, I think it's still Ruby and JavaScript. And so I was working in... Ruby and JavaScript when I became an engineer there. But as we started to build out some new features, we wanted to spin off some microservices in Elixir, which was my introduction to Elixir. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for that clarification. That's really awesome that you got that kind of experience like way at the beginning of your your technical journey. Yeah. When I talk to people about their journey to Elixir, it is often a very similar story to mine where it's like, oh yeah, there was this one guy who just loved Elixir and convinced us all to use it. And then we all loved it, which is hopefully it's becoming more common to pick up Elixir for the tool itself or knowing what the right use case is for it. But at that time, especially, I had never used it. And Steven Nunez actually introduced it to the group that we were working at there. And so we started writing in it, and it's very familiar when you're coming from Ruby, especially just because the syntax looks similar. So I think he sold it to us like, look, it's it's friendly. It looks a lot like Ruby. And then getting into it, you understand there's like the total paradigm shift of object-oriented to functional and immutable data and stuff, uh, which was a hurdle. But I think like it was a really nice way to learn it for me is working on a project and having people to learn it with at the same time was great. We also had book clubs that we ran to help each other as we were going through it. So that was my introduction to Elixir was at Flatiron School, but not through the program. I wish that more programs would teach Elixir. I think that'd be awesome. How long ago was this? Because it 
seems like that would be maybe 2016, 17. So still kind of early for Elixir. It was actually 2018, I believe. 18? Okay. And into 19, I want to say. Okay. So around the time that we're like, Elixir is like super stable and yeah. not changing too much out from underneath you. Yeah, exactly. I started as an engineer there in 2018. So it would have been after that, that we started using it in the project that I was working on. So yeah, I think that they had been using it before we started on the project that I was on, but in other capacities. Are there pain points that have kind of gone away since you got started with Elixir? On a personal level or in Elixir itself? It could be like learning or just on a day-to-day like practical yeah. basis. The learning curve with Elixir that I've seen does come from that shift I was talking about where you have to separate in your mind the idea that data is bonded to functions and that I can call a function on a piece of data. That for some reason feels like the biggest hurdle from where I came from and also seeing other people learn it. So once that becomes more embedded, it becomes a lot easier to grasp everything else that is going on and the way that it's structured. I think like even understanding the difference between I'm making a class versus I'm making a module stems from that basic premise of I am acting on data. Data does not contain functions with which it can change itself. So that's the biggest thing that I think I've seen change in terms of like ramping up to getting into Elixir. And then also the amount of information that is out there, the community that has grown around it has provided so much more resources for people learning and people who are retooling from another language that has made it a lot easier as well to get people started in it and to come over from another language, which is most of the people that I've seen. I haven't worked with anybody who has learned Elixir as their first language yet. I think I've maybe run into one or two people who were junior engineers kind of picking up Elixir is a first language, but if I'm having such a brain failure moment, mm-hmm. then maybe I'm making it up. <laughs> if you're a junior engineer learning Elixir, hit us up. <laughs> Tell us about your journey. Yes. When I was kind of getting serious, trying to kind of get up to speed on development stuff a few years ago myself, I was trying to learn Elixir kind of at the same time as I was learning JavaScript, and that was just a little bit too much. So I'd kind of learned that I had to kind of like as cool and as amazing, and like the talks are all great. I had to kind of like set Elixir to the side for like a year while I got like fundamentals and kind of like baby programmer stuff. But like once I did come back to Elixir, things started making a lot more sense. And yeah, like a lot of people have said, like it, it kind of ripples out to code that you're writing even in other languages. So I'm really interested in what made you feel like you couldn't get the baby programmer stuff in Elixir. Because I think that might be a really interesting like piece we might be missing. I was tripping up on words. So like I think I was like seeing like stuff like immutability and like trying to understand functional programming before I really understood like that like just even data types and stuff yeah. like that. And getting comfortable with the command line and like the terminal and kind of more like stuff you might learn in like first year of college. I don't know. <laughs> Didn't go yeah. to college, so I don't know what you would learn or when you would learn it. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of where I was at. It was learning JavaScript at the same time as all the tooling around actually writing code. Yeah, I do think there is a beginning section of learning how to program that is 
learning how to learn how to program. You have to learn what the right questions are instead of like, how do I do this? Just tell me. It's like, what is this thing? How does this thing function? What does this look like when you do this? It's like asking the right questions that you have to get comfortable with in whatever language you decide to go for. And I think that the multitasking between the two different languages has been difficult. At least it was difficult for me when I was also straddling JavaScript and other languages. And that's at least what my mentors told me. But Meryl, since you also have done teaching, have you kind of given similar or different advice? No, actually, I think that's absolutely the advice that I would give to a junior engineer. And it is something that I tell people who are graduating boot camps because there's such a bevy of like options when you graduate and you're like, oh my God, should I learn Python now? Should I like, I hear Rust is really cool. (laughs) Should I learn Rust? And I think that the best thing to do is to double down on what you're most comfortable with. And coming from Flatiron School, they teach Ruby and JavaScript in different sections. And people tend to gravitate toward one or the other. So whichever one makes more sense initially is so important to just delve in and understand the basics and feel like you've got your footing there before moving on. The only thing that I wish for us as Elixir developers is that we were a part of that because there's no reason why Elixir can't be a fundamental building block for a new developer. There's no reason why that can't be the first thing that they learn. I imagine the reason it's not is because so many of us have come to it from another language that most of the resources is geared to people who already have their footing somewhere else. So that coming in and seeing the word immutable isn't scary and it isn't something I've got to go write down and look up later. It's just, okay, yeah, that I get that. That's what I'm coming into. But I really think if we're going to grow our community and we're going to have a pool of developers that can satisfy like, the needs of the businesses that are using Elixir, we're going to have to eventually get really good at introducing new coders to Elixir first. Because it's, yeah, it, it, I remember the first thing that I was learning before Flatiron School even, I was at a short, like five-week prep course in New Orleans where I used to live. And it was like a hack reactor offshoot that was there. And we learned JavaScript, but not in the browser. We were just doing a lot of like, here's a function. Let's make an algorithm. Let's understand what all these parts are and these pieces are. We didn't apply it in any web developing way. We were just using it for algorithm purposes, but that's something that didn't have, we weren't really learning it in an object oriented way at the time or anything like that. And I think that could easily be translated to something that we could do with Elixir, just starting off very small building blocks and building into something like what the Ruby course looks like at Flatiron, which is, okay, here's, you're supplying data to a backend and this is what it looks like. I do think it's probably really overwhelming where it is right now with a lot of the resources that's out there. I I think there's probably some good ones that are coming out, but yeah, I think that needs to grow for us to continue to grow our pool of people. This seems to be a theme. I'm I'm hearing kind of similar conversations in uh, some of the podcasts, you know, in the community and maybe even in the forums and stuff. So I think there is kind of an like brainstorming kind of async brainstorming or something that's you know the community's trying to uh, like we've identified this need that like yeah elixir is like it does simplify a lot of things for us as developers and someone out there in the community needs to like start creating like 
Elixir for like complete noobs course or something like that, you know, like here's a computer, here's data types and here's how the internet works with Elixir. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention resources that are already there, like Elixir school that are very basic and it starts out very basic for understanding a lot of those those things. But I have not personally looked at even something like that with the eye of somebody who has never walked into a terminal before. So there's probably lots that we can do to help that out. I think I saw a tweet today where someone picked up the book that Sophie co-wrote, the live view programming book, and said that they were just starting to learn to program and, and using that book, which was very heartwarming. So shout out to Sophie. That's awesome. That. I think a lot of people also like I've said this before, probably this season, this very season, but we do have a really amazing, beautiful collection of Elixir books. And that just kind of sinks you into a hole if you're a person who doesn't learn by books. And I was really, I've recently been reading, I mean, it's technically a book, but it doesn't feel like one. I've been learning Flutter through a book that was released in October called The Flutter Apprentice. And it actually is like an interactive, there are sections, it almost reads like some of those documentation tools, where the like left side has all the different sections, you click into them, and there's like a piece of code that you copy, and you put it into your simulator, it runs code, you see how it goes. And then it says, all right, then it has like all these to do's that you're supposed to fill in, they give you the code, you fill it in, and you see what it does. Then they explain why that did that thing, why that was helpful, why that was better than the thing that you had before. And that was just like my perfect learning style. Little awesome. digestible chunks of stuff that helped me figure out what I needed to do. I've been like really taking my time with this book because I really need to understand some key concepts, state management particularly. <laughs> but when I was reading it, I was just like, someone needs to make this for Elixir. And then I remembered that <laughs> we shouldn't be saying someone needs to make this. It's like, yeah, I've got to make it. Oh my gosh. And then you put pressure on yourself and then. Yeah. Like we've got live book now. So I think live, live book will help unlock that exact type of learning. Like, you know, you have a paragraph of markdown with an explanation and you have a chunk of code that, you know, someone who's learning can like enter in whatever the answer should be and execute until it works. So yeah, I think there's some really cool possibilities there. Yeah. I think that that's, Absolutely a lovely way of getting interactivity into our learning. I will say the best way that I feel like I've ever learned is by teaching or by not like capital T teaching, but creating presentations and encapsulating the things that I have done and understood in something that I think someone else will understand and forcing yourself to write maybe blog or create little presentations is also a way of delving into a subject that I don't think that I would get to the depth of understanding that I have without just because of the way that I lazy learn. <laughs> I'll learn enough to do it. And unless I force myself to tell someone else about it, I don't think that I ever quite get to the fundamentals of what I'm trying to understand. I don't blog anymore, but when I did, <laughs> this was pretty useful. But I love making little like even keynotes or presentations for meetups or anything like that that I feel helps strengthen what I understand about something so that somebody else can understand it. So yeah, more of that too, in encouraging people to give talks as new speakers or, or junior developers, plug for 
MPEX coming up in the spring, which is always looking for junior developers or, or new speakers. So things like that, I think, are really helpful just as a to encourage people to do. And also inspiring to other people who are like, oh, yeah, I was afraid to t- say that I didn't understand what that was until they talked about it and made me feel like I, I wasn't behind. You know, this is where I'm supposed to be. MPEX is in May in yes. Salt Lake City? Yes. Cool. Yeah, I think I was looking at the website earlier. I wanted to underline something you just said. One of the most important lessons I've learned becoming an engineer is the value of that statement. Like, I don't understand. Like when you're in a meeting and you're hearing like an explanation, like a kind of a, sometimes a long-winded or like a kind of a jargony explanation of something and you haven't worked in that area before, as scary as it is, like if you can bring yourself just to say, I don't understand, I think you're saying this, am I correct? That kind of thing. The answers you get after that tend to be really great. A great question I've gotten recently is, can you say that again using different words? <laughs> That's a yes. really cool way of saying it. Sometimes somebody will explain something and I'll be like, I don't understand. And then they'll say it all again using the same exact language. And I'm like, those words don't make any sense to me in that organized, in that fashion, the way you arranged them. Please just try a different way. And yeah, somebody asked me that recently and I said, okay, I'm, I'm learning now, now that we're all remote, just everyone has a different communication style. I can't just assume that the way I speak, that the way I put sentences together is the way that people will hear things. And so I really appreciate this question. So like being very specific about what you didn't understand has been really cool for me to help me get better at explaining things, but also when I I don't get it. Yeah, absolutely. And you sound smart. Like it's kind of (laughs) like ironic, but you sound smart when you say, I don't understand what you're saying. Right. Now I'm on my toes. Maybe I don't know what I'm saying either. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, that actually has happened when I was very recently at Frame. I started working with somebody who was brand new to Elixir, but not a junior developer and brand new to our code base as well. So there was a lot of pair programming that we did together just to onboard them. And what we were trying to think of some kind of like helpful way of onboarding to Elixir while onboarding to the code base. So we had some resources and we had some overall, like here's basically Elixir in 20 minutes. <laughs> like here's some, you know, it was iterative. And so we're trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we get new people on? But they were just amazing about the way that they approached learning and approached asking me questions. They wrote a lot of things down and then clarified at every step. And the confidence to do that is hard to come by. And so I don't fault people for not having it right out the gate, but it is absolutely the best way to learn. And often when we were working on a project together, when they would ask me to explain why I decided to take a certain direction, it was super helpful to walk through it or to not immediately say, oh, well, your idea wouldn't work because we've already got it in this configuration, but to actually step through together and and think through the architecture together because it would either expose a way that we could do it differently or an opportunity to learn about the code and the language that they had like not gotten to yet. So it can be so instructive on both sides to be open about that. And it is very scary to do, especially when you're new at a company, but it can help everybody. Also, now that we're all remote, Slack is our 
like wiki for things that we haven't remembered to write down yet. So asking in a public channel is is so valuable instead of DMing somebody. But something that people have done for me and I've done for other people is if someone is not confident about asking something in channel and DMs me, or this has happened like for me as well, the more senior engineer can ask the question in channel so that we still contain that knowledge and then like they get the question answered. We also recently at Smart Logic were talking about like the concept of asking for help. And a lot of people did mention that, you know, they don't want to ask questions that they feel bad about not knowing the answer to. And that's like a really good point is that sometimes like, yes, from a project management, engineering management standpoint, you want people to ask questions in public spaces for documentation, for knowledge, sharing. And then you like forget that the person who's asking might just be terrified of asking it, doesn't want to look dumb or spend 5,000 hours crafting the question. So that's a really great technique. And I appreciate that that you've talked about that because that's really a nice thing that you've done for somebody who's asking you a question. Yeah. And this has happened uh, like for me too, when I was starting out at different places. But the other thing it helps is for the senior developer to not have to rewrite that answer to the next person that comes along and asks. And that has happened a bunch of times where, you know, you ask a question to someone and they're like, oh, I should really write this down. But here's basically (laughs) what it is. Or like, let me copy and paste this from somebody else that I already answered this to. And that exposes something that should be in a public domain. We're not always going to get documentation down in the right places and whatever we're using. But at least if it's publicly searchable, yeah, it just helps everybody in that way. Cool. Jumping back to Elixir real quick. I was curious because you did have a background in other languages before you jumped over to Elixir. Did learning Elixir change the way you thought about programming in like overall, like the sense of overall programming? Yeah, it did. I actually made a short presentation about this at some meetup. I actually think Smart Logic hosted this meetup a, a long time ago, pre-pandemic times, <laughs> in the before times. In a physical place? It was physically in person in a in place. Baltimore? No, it was in New York. And huh. I can't remember if Smart Logic hosted it or if they were a sponsor of it. No one on this call right now, other than you, Meryl, <laughs> will have a memory of this. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, it was fabulous. I'll just okay. <laughs> I'll take the credit. We'll take the credit. <laughs> but yeah, I, I remember putting this together closer to when I had learned Elixir, and I remember thinking, as I was switching between Elixir and Ruby, how much writing Elixir cleaned up my Ruby code because I had a better sense of encapsulation after I had been writing in Elixir for a while, and my Ruby code became a lot cleaner and the data became a lot more stable as I was writing it. And so I think that that helped a lot as I was still writing in both languages. But then even going forward to my time at Frame being full stack, the opposite thing kind of happened as well, where I started writing in TypeScript for the first time. And I had not written in any typed language before. So writing in TypeScript, at first, you know, the transition is a little painful. But once I did, using type specs and being careful about typing in Elixir was so nice. And it felt so good to come, like, take from that language and apply it to 
tools that we already have in Elixir that we can use because I really wasn't doing a ton of that before. And it wasn't something that I had really learned was a, an in, integral part of writing Elixir in, in previous work. So I think like moving between those languages definitely helped clean up my code in both cases and helped me feel like so much more confident about the data that I was using, knowing what was coming in and out and catching my own errors before my compiler took, you know, a little break <laughs> or something like that. So yeah, those were both very instructive events. And, and I think like we were saying earlier, it's not great to learn too many languages when you're first starting out, but getting to cross-pollinate once you feel comfortable in one language can really only be good for informing how you want your code to look and how you want to structure your code. A lot of us have come to Elixir not as our first language. And it's usually, like you said, it's because someone kind of, there was an instigator somewhere along the way, or in my case, it was just because like the algorithm was like seeing functional JavaScript and like recommending Elixir talks, you know, that were related to that. I kind of wonder if there are other opportunities for us to like introduce other communities to Elixir, like, you know, JavaScript developers who might be kind of bumping up against like all the, you know, deployment complexity there, like they might benefit from Elixir. And like, how do you, how do you like kind of increase the visibility of Elixir to other communities not, and not just wait for them to like discover us, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think part of it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with trying to create and surface resources that are geared toward people who are first-time programmers because those can only help people who are coming from somewhere else as well. People are fine with learning new languages. They just don't know if Elixir is going to be something beneficial to them or they don't know enough about it to want to delve in. But being able to surface that this company cares about training you and it cares about you feeling really confident going forward with this work, that can really help and that can make a huge difference in people being willing to try. Because you just don't, like we were talking about earlier, you don't want to feel like you're totally on the wrong foot coming somewhere. That's very scary. That's very hard to do. And just knowing that we're aware of that as a community and we're providing resources for people to transition is I think going to really lower the barrier for entry into those spaces and to share those resources with each other. I, like I, I know that we're, we were working on something when I was at frame recently that was, okay, what is a, like a ramp up look like in Elixir generally? I'm sure that's something that knock is going to get to as well as we continue expanding because we can't just keep hiring only Elixir developers. So yeah, I think that those are two things that I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's just, Within the places we're, we're already in, taking advantage of those spaces. It's always hard to reach out and, and get people to like cold calling, basically. Like, come try this. Have you heard of Elixir? Yeah. Excuse me. Do you have five minutes? <laughs> it's really cool. <laughs> I'm curious what, like, we've asked this question all season, just like what the impact of Elixir has been, you know, on your programming style and everything. But I'm actually, because you are way more involved in the community than maybe our average person off the street. How has Elixir impacted you as a person? And like, how has it changed your life? I mean, that might be a little more different. Oh, man. I mean, I'm working at Knock now. I worked at Frame.io. <laughs> I don't think I would have done either of those things if I hadn't been introduced to Elixir at Flatiron School. This is probably 
too touchy feely for what you were looking for, but just being in two places during a pandemic where I felt very supported, met really great people, continued to learn and grow. I'm sure that I could have found those things in another language, but also the community aspect of feeling like this isn't a huge community. It's a big enough space that there are tons of people to me. There's tons of resources to look at, but it's not so big that you can't make an impact and become a part of it as somebody who only has like what, four years of engineering experience. So getting to be involved in this community and being afforded the opportunity to be on podcasts like this and MC a conference and be involved in like lots of educational opportunities as well has, I really can't imagine what my life would look like had I not found like this sort of niche when I was kind of starting out. So yeah, it's, it's been an enormous impact for me personally. And I really hope to continue working in it for as long as I'm writing code, because it's just something that has been enjoyable in itself, but also afforded me the opportunity to be around a lot of amazing people and in really caring, supportive work environments. And now you are a founding software, full stack software engineer at a brand new company. Yeah. People get their notifications to the customers. So this is really cool. I'm kind of curious now that we're kind of maybe circling back around to knock, like these days, you whenever you set up a new Phoenix project, I think by default, you get like an email adapter or a client, which I haven't interacted with myself. So I'm kind of curious, like for Knock as a service, like what's the point, like if I'm running a product company, like at what point do I outgrow like the kind of the built-in tools that I get with Phoenix, like, uh, like just an email package or an SMS package? What, at what point do I really need to like reach out or is something is not something that I should be considering like from day one with the new product? I would consider from day one. I mean, there's, you get, I think it's like 10,000 notifications for free. I don't see a reason to not immediately start using it because if you're starting a new project, the last thing you want to do is work on something that's not product related and notifications are that. I would immediately connect to the API and it's, it's like a, an adapter model, like with Twilio or something, you would just get your credentials and connect to the API. And then you can immediately configure in your dashboard and run tests. It's also version controlled. Like as I'm learning more about the product, it's more and more interesting. Like it's got so much capacity to handle more complex things and grow in really interesting ways. So you immediately don't have to worry about any kind of product requirements that are going to grow notification-wise, because those will be handled. And the other nice thing is that as you're growing, one thing I've seen a lot of is that engineers are often tasked with changing notifications or changing how do we want someone to be able to modify their preferences or how do we want to, do we want to create a new different kind of push or SMS notification or something like that. And this removes the need for an engineer to be physically involved in that at all times. Like a product manager can go in and start changing things and and changing preferences, which is really more where that wheelhouse should live. So yeah, I think like now that I've seen this and have worked in it for, you know, less than a week, I would not consider in any capacity trying to do my own notifications 
And that might be a personal thing. But I think when you're trying to get up and running, the most interesting parts of your product are your domain modeling and the things that you care about servicing. And so either notifications become like an afterthought or they take up a lot of time and energy and honestly, database resources and infrastructure resources to maintain. So is uh, is not geared more towards transactional, like uh, transactional notifications or marketing or both? It's developer focused. It's like an API focused tool. So it can be whatever it needs to be for the product itself. So there's in-app push notifications, I think, for Android and Apple and on on web. And then there's the email and SMS clients. I think I'm missing one, but I can't. I mean, I really haven't gotten this elevator pitch down quite yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a list on a website somewhere. Yes, it's on a website somewhere at knock.app. You can find out all about it. And there's also a Twitter and a changelog that we post. So you can see all the new developments that are always happening. And yeah, constantly adding features and stuff. Are there some components that are being open sourced with this? or I have no idea, truly. No clue. Okay, gotcha. It's only been a week, you know. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, yeah, on a yeah, projects, the projects I'm on after a week, I couldn't have explained maybe <laughs> anything, so. Yeah, another thing that I found is useful in general programming is being able to just say, I don't know. It's it's fine. You can go find out, I'm sure. 100%. <laughs> you might not know the answer to this, but for the name for Knock, I'm wondering, like I'm just drawing conclusions from Chris's last name being Bell. And oh Bell my God, I didn't going to notification. Wow. Somebody, <laughs> wow. you've cracked the code. Wow. I cracked it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask him about that because I have not thought of that yet. I just thought about like a knocking on a door. The slack knock. Yeah. Oh. Or, or a door. Yeah. I was actually thinking about a physical door, which is aggressive now that I think about it. I hope we never get <laughs> I'm imagining... That. Sunday's got like a poster board with like Chris Bell, knock app, and like red wires going everywhere, trying to piece it together. Absolutely. And today, this moment, she caught it. Yeah, yeah. This is how I spend my free time when I have it. <laughs> what does it mean? What, what does, does it mean? mean? <laughs> We've talked a lot about like the Elixir community and just how you've grown with Elixir, how the community's changed around you. Do you have any biggest hope streams to see for Elixir in the next five or 10 years? Yeah, like the outcome I would hope to see is that Elixir becomes an easy first choice language pick for both junior devs starting their own little projects and for founders who are starting a company. There are definitely really excellent use cases for Elixir, but general use cases for Elixir are also great. And as somebody who works and lives in this community, I want to see it grow. I want to see it become sustainable in a way that the major programming languages are. And we can really only do that by making sure that more people are involved and this becomes a no-brainer pick to start something off with. And, it, and I think it can happen with a lot of the things that we've discussed this podcast, just more easy go-to resources for starting your own project, more from no code to some code, basic tutorials, and then also very importantly, onboarding in companies that use Elixir for non-Elixir devs and using that as like a marketing tool. 
I think if we start to see that, it will become a lot more popular as well. Like we have an onboarding program to Elixir. That's something that I think can catch on and like other companies will want to copy once that's something that becomes a drawing point for people who are interested, but not sure that they can make the leap. So I obviously just want to see this community grow and continue so that I can keep having a job (laughs) and continue working and working in a way that I like to work. So it's all very selfish, but that is what my hopes and dreams are for the Elixir world. We have this running joke in the community overall that like, once we have you, we don't want to let you go. So I think (laughs) our interests are aligned. I say our, like the royal hour. Yes. <laughs> so that's great. I'm excited that this is a space that you enjoy being in, as it is also a space I enjoy being in and I enjoy hanging out with you. So Yay. we'll see lots of each other in the future. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so great to have you, Meryl. Do you have any final plugs or ask for the audience, places people can find you on social media, places where they can catch up on what you're up to? Yeah. So a plug would be that Knock is hiring for product designers and developer experience. So if you are in one of those categories, check us out. We are a fun group of people and we use Elixir. So you can learn that if you feel like coding. And then I can be found on Twitter at Meryl Dakin, but I don't tweet a lot. I just sort of look at other people's tweets. So You can interact with me there, but you won't see me post a lot unless it's about my cats. Amazing. (laughs) Oh, one moment. (laughs) I don't know. I'm going to look it up. I think it's impacts.co slash MTN. I think that was from a tweet earlier, May 6th. Yes, you were exactly right, Sunday. It is impacts.co slash MTN. I can't wait. I'm so excited to do this in the West. I think that will be so much fun. So yeah, our team is definitely going to be going to that. And obviously because Chris is organizing it, but yeah, I'll be there. So come hang out. That would be really fun. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Meryl. This has been a blast. That is it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Meryl Dakin, for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Sunday Mint, and my co-host, Owen Bickford. Our producer is Bonnie Lander, and our executive producer is Rose Burt. Here at SmartLogic, we build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Kubernetes, and more. If you need a piece of custom software built, hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. And follow at SmartLogic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. You can also join us on the Elixir Wizards Discord. Just head on over to the podcast page to find the link. And don't forget to join us again next week for more on the impact of Elixir. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. But before we sign off, I just want to remind you one more time about our audience survey. We love making these podcasts, and we really want to know how we can make them even better. The survey will be up for three more weeks. So if you don't get to it right away, you still have a little bit of time to give us your feedback. Just go over to https colon forward slash forward slash smr.tl forward slash survey. Thanks for listening.